Okay, let's bow our heads in silent preparation as we prepare for the teaching of God's Word. Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you again for your many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the Savior who took on human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you, Father, for the incarnation. We thank you for all the witnesses to who your Son is. And we, Father, we pray that as we study the Word of God, we might have a greater appreciation of the Savior. What child is this? Thank you, Lord, for the Scripture, which clearly explains that question, Lord. I pray that the believers here might take in your Word by faith, sanctify them through your truth, because your Word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 36. John chapter 5, verse 36. And in this, this section of Scripture, we're dealing with the witnesses to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 36, we, have, we, we dealt with the witness of John the Baptist. Um, we see that in verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. The nation, though, rejected John the Baptist and his witness. In verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But they did not lead to whom John was pointing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds a greater witness in verse 36 than John. I have a greater witness than John for the works which the Father had given me to finish, the very works that I do here witness to me that the Father has sent me. So not only does the person of Jesus Christ testify to who he is, uh, but also his works. Now what are his works? Certainly we primarily think of miracles. Last week we looked at a miracle that Jesus performed that pointed clearly to who he was. The miracles demonstrated he truly was the Messiah, the Son of God. But certainly there are other activities of Jesus that point to the fact that he is the Messiah. And this morning we dealt with that passage in Hebrews pointing to the fact that Christ took on human nature to fulfill the will of God. Over and over in the Gospel of John, he states, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. And that will ultimately would be to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute. That's the ultimate work that points to the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be. In the book of Romans, by the way, God validated that work by raising the Son from the dead. And the resurrection is the ultimate validation of the accomplished work of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus here had weightier evidence for his identity than John's witness. It came from his Father. And it took several forms. First his works in 36, then his Father's word concerning his Son in verse 37. The word ergon here in this context refers to an assigned task or job. So Jesus had a mission. He had an assigned task, and that was to accomplish the Father's will. And that would be called his work or works. There are certain things that Jesus did in fulfillment of that mission and plan. This work can include miracles, but it's not limited to miracles. So although this does include Jesus' miracles, it it contains other things that are not uh, classified as miracles. Now, last week we looked at Jesus healing a blind man from birth, and that clearly is described as a work of God in John chapter 9. That was a validation of Jesus' messianic claim. Now, these works include certainly his miracles and then his life of perfect obedience. Uh, That demonstrated who he claimed to be. His work then ultimately of redemption on the cross. We call that the finished work, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, validated that he came to accomplish the will of the Father who sent him. The ultimate work of Christ was to finish the work that God sent him to do, to die as a substitute for our sins on the cross. In John 17, 4, he anticipated that by praying, uh, what we call the Lord's, the proper Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus prayed uh, before his death, in anticipation of his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And if we read that whole chapter there in chapter 17. But verse 4 says this, I have glorified you on the earth, 
I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Here this is an anticipation of Jesus' accomplished redemption. He anticipates his death on the cross as mission fulfilled and fulfilling the will of the Father. Later on in John 19.30, Jesus cried out with a loud voice those uh, great words to tell us die, it is finished. It is finished. And that word means paid in full. It was stamped on Greek bills of that day. Bills that were paid off were paid in full. And therefore, when we look at the idea of the finished work of Christ, not only did he complete the work that God sent him to do, he paid for the sins of the whole world, but that payment was in full. We have to realize that. Some people think that salvation is God doing his part and we doing our part. And so kind of salvation is God does 95% of the work and I do my 5%. But really, when we look at it, he paid the work. He paid for everything. He accomplished the work. He satisfied a holy God. And when we think of the doctrine of propitiation in 1 John 2, 2, and he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, Jesus Christ satisfied God's righteous, just demands for a payment and punished his son in our place. There's nothing left for us to do as far as the works of God other than to believe and accept his work. And therefore, his work is complete. His work is complete. And Jesus demonstrated that by sitting down at the right hand of the Father. When the work is over, you sit down. There's nothing else left to do. It's accomplished. And so that great work of Christ is anticipated here as a witness to who Christ is. Jesus had glorified the Father by all that he had done in his incarnation. He had accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. In Luke 2.49, Hebrews 10, 5-10, and John 19.30, Jesus probably was including his death, resurrection, and ascension, to which he referred to in advance in, John, in, in uh, this section here. Jesus' crucifixion was a foregone certainty because of his commitment to do the Father's will as in Philippians 2, verse 8. We are to rest by faith in that finished work sacrifice. Think about that. Let's take a look at John chapter 6. And at this point, people usually say, yeah, but. (laughs) Right? I agree with you, but. There's always a but included in that. People individuals don't want to give all the credit to what to the Lord Jesus Christ in accomplishing the work. We deserve some of the credit, don't we? Something left for us to do, right? Some kind of work that we need or commitment or turning from your sins or promises to serve Him. But look at John 6, verses 28 and 29. His own disciples addressed Jesus with this. And they're thinking, look here, in John 6, 28 they said to him what shall we do that we may work the works of god what what do we need to do (laughs) jesus answered and said to to them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he sent that's it faith um like the philippian jailer asked in acts 631 acts 1631 what must I keep on doing to be saved? I think that's a present tense verb there in Acts 16.30. What do I need to keep on do, doing to be saved? Aorist tense, Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One time. Accept that sacrifice by faith. Believe that Jesus accomplished that work and you are born again at that point and forever secure and saved in God's eyes. So once you understand the nature of Christ's sacrifice, it's complete. And that's why, by the way, when we hear of theories of atonement, the Roman Catholic Church has a different view of why Christ died. There are other denominations that have a different view of Christ died. But we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's the biblical view. Christ died in our place. He did not die simply as a tragic martyr. He did not simply die to show us how to live. That's kind of works type of uh, view of the atonement. Uh, He died as a substitute, intercepting God's wrath instead of us, so that we can have eternal life by faith in Him. 
And that's the biblical view of why Christ died. He completed the work. Now, from time to time, I think I need to share and express the gospel. We have a track written, and I want to make the gospel clear. The question is, if you should die today, if you should die today, are you 100% certain that you would wake up in heaven? Are you completely 100% sure? I remember uh, a certain college professor at Dallas Seminary was asked a question, are you 100% sure that if you would die today, you would go to heaven? He said, I'm 98% sure. Uh, that's not certainty. 75% is not certainty. 99% is not certainty. 100% certainty. Okay. 100% certain. The reason why he held back, more than likely, he believed in the perseverance of the saints. So if my good works do not continue, I prove then that I've never believed in the first place. That works mentality is built into a lot of people. Maybe I'll fall away from the faith. Maybe I won't continue. Maybe I'll do this and that in the future that will nullify what God has done. And they don't understand the complete work that Christ did. And that's why they don't have certainty. Uh, salvation is certain. It's because the reason why I can be certain, that's not arrogant, by the way, to say, I'm, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. People think that's an arrogant statement. It would be arrogant if that was based on my performance. Right? That would be arrogant. But if it's based on what Jesus did, then it's not arrogant. And that's where salvation rests, on what Jesus did. Uh, therefore, the question, if you should die today, we need to explain that there's a sin barrier between God and man. There's a sin barrier between God and man. The Bible states fairly clearly in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and, and keep on falling short, ongoing. The glory of God, Romans 3.23. Therefore, we have an issue between us and God. And that sin. Sin is like a wall, if you want to look at it, between God and mankind. And therefore, man's sinfulness is a barrier between him and God, who is holy. God cannot tolerate sin. He is absolutely without sin. In him, there is no darkness at all. One sin offends an infinite holy God. You know, it's not more moral relative righteousness. I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. That's not a comparison. You're not okay because you're not, you're better than your neighbor. You're not as sinful as your neighbor or your friend or whatever your coworker. You are sinful and you are you fall short of God's glory because God is a standard. He's a standard. I got to measure up to perfect holiness. And you say, well, who can do that? And that's, you're thinking in the right direction when you ask that question. You're thinking in the right direction. I can't. Therefore, someone else has to bear God's wrath, and someone else has to bear his judgment, and someone else has to live a perfect life. And therefore, that person is the Lord Jesus. I can't make it on my own. Therefore, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die on the cross as our substitute. One who takes the place of another. We have the Greek prepositions in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4. Christ died for, hooper, as a substitute for our sins. We have the word NT, a Greek preposition referring to substitution. Christ and the Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die on the cross as our substitute. He paid the full price for the sins of the whole world. In 1 John 2, 2. Once again, he is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world, the world of humanity, that he gave his Son. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. As in our Roman series, we demonstrated Wednesday that the Old Testament mentions the Gospel. The good news is prophesied in the Old Testament. In Christ's substitutionary death in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He died as our substitute. The Old Testament predicted that. Every animal sacrifice was a substitute. You ever think about that? That person's dying because of my sins. That, per that animal shedding his blood 
its blood because of my sins. And so the animal sacrifices, in a sense, pointed to Christ. They were not efficacious because the blood of bulls and goats could never remove sin. But Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was efficacious because he was the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's why Christ came. Why did Christ come? What is the incarnation all about? Why did Jesus come to this earth? What did he come to do? He came to fulfill the will of the Father, which includes dying as a substitute for the sins of the whole world. That was mission, the number one mission of Christ. He did other things along the way. He performed miracles, yes. He, he taught. He's a great teacher. But ultimately, though, he came as the Lamb of God. Now, people try to go to heaven because uh, by doing certain things, good works. And you could try to be good enough for God to let you into heaven, but the Bible clearly states that we can never do enough good works to earn eternal life. And if you did all the philanthropy uh, that you can do, give money to the poor and charitable institutions and the church and all these other things, in order to merit God's favor, that would not be enough. That would not be enough. We still fall short. We still have a sin issue that has to be taken care of. You can try to be good enough for God to let you into heaven, but the Bible clearly states that we can never do enough good works to earn eternal life. Ephesians 2.8 says we're not saved by works. It's not of works. We also have that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Ephesians 2.9, not of works lest any man should boast. God will not let you into heaven because you're good. It's not by your achievement and performance your accomplishments some people think well attending church that's a good thing after you're born again <laughs> so you can grow in your faith but that is that doesn't merit eternal life being baptized a lot of people think that's how i go to heaven that's a step of faith afterwards after you're born again but that's not how we're saved feeding the poor that's another good work the bible commands believers to consider the poor But all these good works, though, will not earn you one day in heaven. They will not save you. The Bible states clearly we're not saved by any works. How are we saved? It's by unmerited favor. Grace means unmerited favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The only thing that God requires on your part is faith. Not the Texas two-step. Repent and believe. You hear in a lot of churches. No, it's faith. One step, one thing. I remember as a young believer struggling with all the things I must do to be saved. What must I do to be saved? Now, if that question I asked today, instead of to the Philippian jailer, people would say, well, I need to turn from my sins. I need to go to church. I need to be baptized. I need to promise God I'll not turn. I'll not sin again. I need to make this kind of commitment to God. Give my life to Christ. Submit to Christ's Lordship. All these things will not save you. One, two, three, or four, all the above, you know, usually, oh, they have faith in there somewhere, okay? Because it's clear in the Bible, so they got to include faith somewhere. But it's clouded by all the other things I need to do. But receive it by simple faith. And they even change the meaning of faith. Well, faith means a commitment. Where do you get that in the Bible? That's not the word pistuos and pistuo, the word for now, the noun and verb for faith. Uh, that's not the idea. Faith is believing something is true. My classic example, Abraham Lincoln. And certainly we did not live during that era. We are taught that in our history books. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. I wasn't there, but I accept it by faith. Biblical faith in one sense is no different. It's simply agreeing what is true. The difference is we have the authority of God's word. This is how God says we need to be saved. Why do people want to invent their own way? We've got to see what the Bible says clearly, how we are to be born, how we can have a right relationship with God. It's by grace, unmerited favor. Deserving has nothing to do with it. I think that was a line in a movie. Deserving has nothing to do with it. And that's what grace is. Uh, Like another writer who put, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. For by grace you've been saved through faith. One thing. One thing. And by the way, that's mentioned in 200 places in the New Testament. 
200. I have the list. Went through it. 200 passages or places where it says faith is the only requirement. Faith alone in Christ alone. And that not of yourselves. Nothing that you could do or merit. It is a gift of God. Another way I like to approach the offer of salvation is a free gift. Christmas time, many of you will receive a Christmas present. Someone else paid the price, and you simply take it. And now, if you offer to pay, it would be kind of insulting at Christmas morning. You say, okay, I'll pay you a part price of that gift. That's insulting in our culture. Try to give someone money for a gift given freely. Uh, and that's the mentality of a lot of people. I'm going to pay back. Or how about this? Okay, you gave me this Christmas gift. I'm going to pay you back over the process of a year. I'll pay back that gift. It wouldn't be a gift, would it? It's barter. It's not not something that's given as a gift. Um, when we look at the life of Abraham in Romans chapter not Romans chapter four, we see that very that contrast between that works mentality and what the gospel offered. Um, Notice here in, Abra- in Romans 4.1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had, some, he had something to boast about, but not before God. He could brag. <laughs> but it's not lest any man should boast. What does the scripture say? That's always the issue. It's not my opinion on how to go to heaven. It's what the Word of God states clearly. What does the Scripture say? Genesis 15.6 Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's all he did. He amen God in the Hebrew. I'm going to multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed that ultimately looks forward to Christ's death on the cross by the way Paul states that gospel being preached to Abraham in Galatians 3.16 another great 3.16 in the Bible Jesus was that seed Uh, Abraham understood that he understood that and he simply believed God that's all he did and God imputed righteousness to his account and then declared him righteous which is justification by faith verse 4 now to him who works the wages are counted as grace but not as debt if you want to work your way to heaven God owes you something you ever think about that God owes me heaven because I'm good what would that be a debt a debt but we're not saved by debt as Schaefer said about grace, seven things about grace, here's a great chapter in his book on grace, grace cannot incur a debt. And that would go against the Lord's salvation position. I'm indebted to serve him. I'm indebted to commit my life to Christ. I'm indebted to do X, Y, and Z. No, you accept the free gift by faith. There are no strings attached. So sometimes we think gifts are having strings, str- strings to it, attached to it, meaning that I'm going to put a little string on this. Okay, you take it, but you know what? I'm going to require, uh, 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 you need to give me a gift. You need to da-da-da, you do this. But salvation's not that way. It is truly free. It is absolutely free. No strings attached. Now, as receivers, receivers of a gift, you can go and then say thank you. God doesn't restrict that. And even your life can be a thanksgiving if you have that mental attitude as I'm going to serve the Lord because I'm glad, I'm, I'm, I rejoice in the fact that He has given me eternal life. But that's not barter. That's not a debt. God's not indebted to you. <laughs> the wages to Him who works, uh, now to Him who works, the wages are counted as grace, but not as grace, but as debt. Verse 5, but to him who does not work but believes. That shows you that faith is not a work. To him who does not work but believes. Faith is the opposite of works. It's not a work. It, Romans 4, 5 states it very clearly. Believes on him. The merit is in the object of faith. Jesus. Who justifies the ungodly. Who does he declare righteous? Ungodly people. Hmm. His faith 
is accounted for righteousness. So, it's very clear that salvation is by grace, through faith. Nothing you could do, it is a free gift. What do you do with gifts? Accept them. <laughs> Question is, will you receive God's gift of eternal life? What does God offer? Well, the gift is not good health. The gift is not health, wealth, and prosperity. The gift is eternal life. That is the core of the gift. And when we present the gospel, we need to mention what the offer is. What does God give you when you place your faith in His Son? He gives you everlasting life. Everlasting life. Question is, will you receive God's gift of eternal life today by simply placing your faith in Jesus for eternal life? And this is God giving you that Christmas gift, the greatest gift of all. And when does eternal life begin? Not when you die. Eternal life begins the moment you believe in Christ and last forever. Back to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. His giving, by the way, was His giving His Son to die on the cross because two verses earlier, He speaks of Moses lifting up a serpent on a bronze pole and those who were physically healed, all they had to do is look and live. My brother, live. <laughs> look to Jesus now and live. The application there is Jesus will be lifted up from the earth. And therefore, all who place their faith in him have eternal life. So will you receive God's gift of eternal life by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Eternal life begins the moment you believe in Christ. That, that moment you're born again. And it lasts forever. It's permanent. It's permanent. Back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him. Whoever means you, by the way. Whosoever. Uh, may not perish, but have, at that moment, eternal life. And that message brings peace and comfort and joy if you believe it. If you believe it. John 10.28 says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So the moment you place your faith in Christ for eternal life, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, that eternal life can never be lost. Those who teach loss of salvation, once again, they express, yeah, but. Yeah, but. And therefore, what if I commit a whopper of a sin next week? The what if I commit the dirty dozen or the nasty nine or the terrible two <laughs> or the onus one? <laughs> uh, what if I do X, Y, and Z next week? Well, if you believe that Jesus took my sin debt and he paid for that sin and God the Father punished instead of me, Jesus, and he satisfied God's righteous demands... Once you place your faith in Him, it's complete. It's finished. It's done. It's sufficient. Your sin... By the way, Chafer also taught, not only does grace, grace cannot incur a debt, grace, has, grace is not based on a merit basis. In a sense, I don't merit grace. We hear about earned grace. I don't merit grace. I don't merit grace. So, I give them eternal life, and they will, double negative in the Greek, ume, which in Greek is emphatic, they will never, we can say, never, ever, 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 ever perish. No possibility at all. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Now, the objection to that usually is, well, I can snatch myself out of God's hand by walking away from him. My pastor used to say, are you a man or a mouse? <laughs> I'm using men in a generic sense, understand, ladies. <laughs> uh, anybody. Are you a human being? <laughs> that includes you. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You yourself cannot. By the way, it's up to the shepherd to guard the sheep. Right? The shepherd, the good shepherd, loses how many? Zero. Loses zero, that includes you, if you place your faith in him. No one, including yourself, by the way, in the Greek it's middle voice. 
Middle means includes you. You yourself cannot snatch yourself out of God's hand. And therefore, we think about the analogy of sheep who tend to go to go astray, but the shepherd makes sure those sheep will not be lost. It's up to the shepherd, not the sheep, to keep themselves. Because you can never lose eternal life, then what's the conclusion? I could be 100% certain that when I die, I will wake up in heaven. There's no other conclusion we can come to if we believe this. These things I've written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. Another great passage. 1 John 5.13 I've helped a lot of individuals over the years with assurance of salvation by, let's take a look at the scripture. I don't want you to look to yourself. I want you to look to the promises in the word of God. And the Bible makes it very clear you can have certainty and know you're going to heaven the moment you believe the gospel. There's no doubt about it. Lewis Berry Chafer indicated that, by the way, in this Dallas Seminary statement. I'm not endorsing Dallas Seminary at this point, but I'm saying in the original doctrinal statement, the born-again believer can be a certain from the very day he places his faith in Christ. I don't have to wait till I do X, Y, and Z and good works to prove I'm saved. Once I believe the gospel, that brings certainty. I can know I, I have eternal life. So many people live their entire life not knowing for sure. Not being certain. The Bible says, can I know it? Yeah. Is that arrogant? No. Because it's what Jesus did. Um, so, what about works? <laughs> You say, well, why does the Bible command us to do good works? Well, I'll give you an answer here. We as believers can go on to serve God, but we can only produce what pleases God by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those works do not earn us heaven. They do earn us reward. So understand that. We'll look at a chart here in a minute. But look at Ephesians 2. There are people appointed, yeah, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not of works, but look at verse 10. You say, what about verse 10? Well, the verse 10 is in the Bible, so let's expound on it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 states, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice it didn't say we'll walk in them but should walk in them. Now that you're born again, should you live a godly life? Yeah. Yes. But you know what? The Lord gives you the capacity for godly living by the by the fact that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He gives you the ability to live a godly life uh, and the fact that you are, his, you are His workmanship created. God created a new nature the moment you're born again. New desires. God gave you the Holy Spirit at the moment of new birth. And therefore, God gives you new desires and a new capacity to live a godly life. This is gracious, by the way. When he says we are his workmanship, that's a grace. That is not only grace. We talk about, we we speak about grace salvation, but this is grace sanctification. So living the Christian life is not a work in the sense that it's not a legalistic mandate. It is a gracious thing. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Don't miss out the word created. This is out, flows out of the new birth. This is who I am in Christ. I have now the capacity that I should walk in good works. And then he says here, clearly Ephesians 2, um, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not saved by good works, were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we will walk in them, or we we should walk in them. We should walk in those good works. Certainly, God wants you to live a godly life that pleases Him. Uh, Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two, verse twelve and thirteen. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also much more in my absence. Who is Paul writing to, by the way? He's writing to believers in Philippi. 
Okay, they're already born again. As a matter of fact, uh, he indicates uh, in two individuals here that whose names are written in the book of life in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. I implore Odia and Syndike to be of the same mind in the Lord, and he urge you also, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel, who's with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, how can you say that they're not dead yet, Paul? <laughs> you know these people are going to heaven? Absolutely. Because they believe the gospel. So, in Philippians 2, another verse that's typically misinterpreted, and things are read into it, but we have to be careful students of the word to pay attention to what this, the text states and what it doesn't say. It says here, therefore, my beloved, who's the address here? Believers. Those who are loved by God. As you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Meaning that while I was physically away from you, you followed the Lord. While I was with you, you followed the Lord. But now, even while I'm away, you're still obedient. I hear of your obedience. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, First of all, it doesn't say work for your own salvation. It's not there. He says work out your own salvation. But what aspect of salvation is he referring to? Is he talking about salvation from sin's penalty? Ephesians 2.8? No. He's talking about salvation from sin's power, stage 2. This is called progressive sanctification. Affect your own deliverance. Progressive sanctification. He's not talking about stage three or glorification. That hasn't occurred yet. So, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, meaning that we live our Christian life out of an awesome respect for a holy God. That's how we live the Christian life. We need to do things that affect our own deliverance by taking the Word of God, studying the Scriptures, attending church, uh, ministering to others. There's a lot of things we could do that affect our own progressive sanctification and it all comes from a respect for God uh, in in that for but wait a second verse 13 it is God who works in you both to will and to do I like the will and the doing uh, God gives us desire a desire to serve him what is called we can write beside that word will new nature uh, Paul remember his struggle with the two natures, the good that I would do, I will do, I find myself doing the opposite, the two natures, old nature. As a believer, you still retain an old sin nature. Uh, you have a nature that's bent away from God. But you know what? God has given you a new nature. That's part of your new creation. And God is at work in you. It's not simply up to you to pull up your own self by your own bootstraps, try harder. Write down all these things I need to do today, you know, post them on the wall, just gut it out, gut out the Christian life by my own strength. God doesn't ask you to do that. He wants you to abide in Christ by faith, and then what happens? You'll be surprised. Fruit will be produced through you. That's a gracious way of sanctification. It is God who works in you, both to will and then to do. The achievement is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, two resources God provides at the point of new birth. He provides a new nature, a new disposition to desire His truth. Number two, He provides the ability to execute His will by the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And that Spirit uh, sanctif- spirit-filled uh, sanctification. When I speak about spirit-filling, I mean the Spirit is controlling you as a believer. Both to will and to do of His good pleasure. How can I do what God wants me to do? It's by desire, new desires which God has given me and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells me. And that's my progressive sanctification. I need to make decisions myself. God gives me still free will. I need us not let go and let God. See, that's the false view of sanctification. Is let go, just kind of let Him do everything. That's passive. That's passivity. The Bible doesn't teach that passivity. 
Will you affect your own deliverance? But at the same time, realize it's not all up to you. It's God working in you. God's at work in you. That's a balanced view of sanctification, by the way, in that passage. And then Romans 8, 2 through 4. Romans chapter 8. Verses 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What is that? That's the Mosaic law. Can only bring condemnation. But you know what? Christ has brought me liberation. For what the law could not do. All you legalists out there, underline that in your Bible. There are certain things the law could not do. Could the law ever make you righteous? Now, don't get me wrong. The law gives us God's holy standard. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But can the law change you? You can create new laws, just like in our land. Just, just create another new law. How about enforce the laws we already have on the books? Right? The law cannot make you live holy. Right? Only God can. The law, though, what it did do is reflect our sinfulness. And therefore, it shows our, our guiltiness before a holy God. But the law could not you know, cleanse you from your sins. What the law could not do is law, the law is like a mirror. You wake up in the morning, look in the mirror. I got this hair out of place and that and that and that. And then your wife says, there's something else you missed. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's what the law, the law does not wash your face. The law does not comb your hair, the mirror, the mirror. The mirror does not do those things, right? It just reflects your condition. Purpose of the law, it reflects our condition. Right? But you know what the law could not do and that was weak through the flesh. Who's the flesh? You, you're, that's you. <laughs> Weak through the flesh. You still have an old sin nature, by the way, resident, residing in your body. God did by sending His own Son the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful, but He took on human nature on account of sin. And when He died on the cross, He condemned sin and the flesh. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled, notice this, in us. What the law demanded and its holy requirements can be fulfilled in us. How? Here it is who do not walk according to the flesh, self-dependence, the energy of the flesh. All you have to do is go back to the prior chapter. Paul says the good that I would do. That's flesh dependence. But according to the Spirit. Remember? God gives you the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the power to live a godly Christian life. The law did not provide that. The Spirit began... Spirit and began his inaugural age. Now, he did certain ministries in the Old Testament. We do see the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament, but it's so unique in the church age, beginning at Pentecost forward. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. The law cannot provide that. That's why the grace age is unique. And people want to go back to the law and depend on the flesh to live the Christian life. And that's not how. It's by the power of another. The third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Alright. So let's make this clear. Salvation is not a works. Alright? It's a gift. So think about eternal life as a gift that God gives you when you place your faith in His Son. Not a works. So leading up to that point, nothing good you could do that can earn that gift. With a gift, you accept it freely. That's the nature of a gift. So, eternal life is that way. Eternal life is a gift. It's not based on our performance or works. Now, flowing out of that, now that I have eternal life, God has given me new desires and new nature. Flowing that, I'm created now for good works. What God did to me, not only giving me eternal life, but God giving me a new nature, God giving me the indwelling Holy Spirit, has set me up for godly living. God set me up now as a believer in Christ for godly living. It's God who's at work. 
both in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. I am now created for good works. That's Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.8-9, I'm not saved by works. But yet, Ephesians 2.10, I have a new capacity for good works. That I should do what? Walk in those good works. Walk in them. Walking, by the way, is a daily activity. Day by day, living for Christ. And I do that by faith. Now, when I do that, then God will one day reward me. I will have a prize. Is there a difference between a gift and a prize? You better believe it. A prize is merited. A prize is earned. You have to do something to get a prize. Now, I know today, you, you know, they give prizes to people who just show up. Right? <laughs> but uh, that's not how it works in biblical days. The athletes had to work. They had to run. They had to endure. They had to fight. They had to do something to earn reward. And that's the way it is with the Christian life. God doesn't give you rewards by doing nothing. <laughs> he gives you eternal life <laughs> by believing. Uh, but reward is by faithfulness. So where do works come into play? We're not saved by works. But once we are a new creation, we have the capacity for good works. And if we continue, we will be rewarded. But notice else, notice one thing else that this boy has. The gift is still there. Eternal life doesn't go away. So he has two things now. He possesses eternal life and he continues to possess that forever because it's a gift. So, just like Christmas Day, I have a gift. But then, maybe after Christmas, you go back to your job and then the next week you have a paycheck. Now I have a Christmas gift and a paycheck. Two separate things. (laughs) One was given freely to me, the other I earned. This is salvation and sanctification, pure and simple, 101. I have eternal life now. Now I can be rewarded. One day I will be rewarded for my faithful service. There's crowns that we can earn. There's various rewards in Scripture that we can earn for our faithfulness. My works after, I believe, have no relationship as far as does not determine my eternal destiny. It's not. I'm not going to heaven. I'm not doing that to prove I'm saved either. Some people front load the gospel. Other people back load it. We're going to get it in there some way. We're going to get works in there somehow. So, uh, you know, if you don't do X, Y, and Z after you're born again, then you're not really born again. I put, I put it this way. If you see someone who is not living a godly life, who claims to be a believer, how do you deal with them? You go back and ask them the same question I asked a little while ago. If you would die today, would you be 100% certain you'd go to heaven? Give them the gospel again. That's how to deal with that. And if they say it's only through Christ and what He has provided and I accept it by faith, okay, now let's deal with consequences of rebellion against God. Let's talk about divine discipline. Let's talk about loss of rewards. Let's talk about loss of peace. Let's talk about all these other things now. Incarnality. And that's how you deal with individuals who claim to be saved. Make sure they're born again, first of all. Get that squared away. And once that's settled, then now it's still with your walk with God. Keep those two issues separate. So this individual now has, in addition to eternal life, on top of that, fantastic rewards. What are those rewards? Well, one of them includes ruling and reigning with Christ in His coming kingdom. Positions of authority in his kingdom. If we suffer with him, 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, we shall also reign with him. Part of our rulership in his kingdom because of faithfulness. God will appoint leaders who were committed to him before he reigns. Just like if you're involved in a political campaign, you knocked on doors, you passed out flyers, you worked hard. Maybe when that individual gets elected, you might have a role in that administration as a reward for your faithfulness. So God has a fantastic rewards program for the born-again believer. But that is where works come into play. To further reinforce that, look. let's turn to the last chapter of the Bible. I don't have this in my PowerPoint, but Revelation chapter 22 makes a distinction between these two things. In uh, Revelation chapter 22, 
uh, we had the return of Christ, which is imminent, <coughs> in verse uh, verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And notice here, my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. Now, all you have to do is go back to to whom this book of Revelation was addressed. The seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He promised rewards for faithfulness. <clears throat> so, his reward is with him. He will reward faithful believers. This is a coming for the church. Alright, so reward, two words in there, they're important. Work, reward. Connect the two. Work, reward. So that's after they have what? Eternal life. But notice down here, for those who don't have eternal life, the invitation, verse 17. The spirit and bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. You have ears to hear the gospel message. Come. Whoever thirsts, you desire, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Think about the woman with the well. <laughs> One drink will quench your thirst forever. The salvation's free. So there is a clear distinction between eternal life, which is free, it's a gift, and reward for faithful service at the return of Christ. And by the way, what occurs after the return of Christ, the Bema, that's where rewards will be handed out in heaven for faithful believers. So we have to keep that clear distinction and works come into play in our sanctification. Let's stop right there. Father, thank you, Lord, for sending your son the Lord Jesus to die as our substitute thank you for that gift of your everlasting life that you provide by faith in your son and the confidence and assurance that having placed our faith in the Lord Jesus we can have peace we can go on to serve you out of thankfulness and gratefulness we can serve you because we know that our labor will be rewarded our labor is not in vain in the Lord we can be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord. We thank you, Father, for this. And, Father, I pray that we might keep the gospel clear, we might present it accurately to those who are lost, and that around this Christmas time, when we think about physical gifts, individuals who need the greatest gift, eternal life, they can receive that by faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you might use us as instruments to clearly convey this gospel truth. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.